Hey, Josh. Yeah? This episode of FGI has a sponsor, CineKitList. Yeah, and if you go to Facebook slash groups slash CineKitList, you get to enjoy a bunch of discounts. Uh, we've actually been a member for a while. I personally love everything that they have to offer. If you go to the Facebook page, Facebook slash groups slash CineKitList, you'll see all the specials they have. Light panels, innovative, Quasar Science, Easy Rig. Yeah, so if you want the same deals that Kevin's getting, then you should go to Facebook slash groups slash CineKitList. Tell them that FGI sent you, and then you'll be able to enjoy all the great discounts on the gear that you use. This is Kevin. And this is Josh. And on this episode of the Filmmaker's Guide to the Industry, we talked to Thomas Dean. He is a rigging gaffer and has a um, pretty sizable, I don't know about you, Josh, but I, I'm pretty, uh, it's a pretty sizable little resume here. Uh, we have... Yeah. There's no small projects on that resume. No, none, none at all. We have Dr. Sleep, Zombieland Double Tap, Godzilla, King of the Monsters, Mile 22, Black Panther, Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2, Stop Me When You Want... Um, the, the list just continues to go on and on and on. And Thomas is, uh, he's the kind of person you want to work with. He will teach you and answer any question you have. And that's exactly what he does on this episode. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. Um, really excited for this episode. Uh, Josh and I both came up in GE, so we have a, a fondness for the department. And with you being a rigging gaffer, um, it's it's definitely a position that not everyone has heard of, but it's incredibly critical to set. Can you kind of dive into uh, how you got started and you know how you ended up being a rigging gr- uh, gaffer and what is a rigging gaffer? I know I'm kind of throwing two or three questions at you, but you know if you can kind of unpack all that for us. Uh, well, I got my start in the business way back in junior high school with a filmmaking project in the eighth grade. Um, so I, I, I've been in love with this my entire life. Um, I tended to do things more camera, like shooting and lighting as I progressed in my career. Um, did some documentary work and really kind of gravitated more towards the lighting side of things. Um, so technically I, um, I kind of settled into being an electrician. Um, I did a lot of set work and then uh, I gravitated more towards rigging because uh, that kind of allows you to have a little bit more of a a regular schedule. Um, Mm. And I really like the technical, a lot of the the math that you have to do, figuring out loads and how to make stuff happen and be ready for the shooting crew to come in so that they're ready to go when they hit the ground pretty much. What was the, how did you get your first job on set? Oh, wow. Um, (laughs) The first real paying jobs that I had working were in Memphis when I was going to school. And um, I was working with a director of photography named Rick Dupree and a local producer named Bob McCrary. They did a lot of work for AutoZone. So I worked on some AutoZone stuff with them. Um, As far as like really being actually on set, I actually, Mm -hmm. I worked at a little small production company in my hometown when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And we did training videos and local 
Sorry, that was the ring doorbell. <laughs> no, no worries. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. Uh, but yeah, I, I uh, basically I met a local DP in Memphis when I was going to school at the University of Memphis, and um, I volunteered for a couple of jobs. And Bob McCrary, the producer, was like, "You're working awful hard. What's your name?" And I started getting paid. Nice, nice. And so, did at what point? So where where is it that you're at now? Uh, well, I'm now I'm I'm 51 years old, so uh, I've been doing this since I was 15, um, in one way or another. Um, and I mainly work in rigging, uh, rigging gaffer. The last several jobs have been either rigging gaffer positions or rigging foreman positions. So. Um, a rigging foreman basically works with a rigging gaffer on larger movies where you have a lot of stages going on and location work and the rigging gaffer can't oversee the specifics of all the different stuff that has to be happening all at once. Um, and are you based in like, a, are you based in Atlanta, LA? I, I am in Atlanta, Georgia. You're in Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. How did you, how did you get from Memphis, uh, to Atlanta? Um, I went to school in Memphis. I had a friend that, uh, I went to college with that had grew, grown up in Wilmington, North Carolina. And at that point in time, in the early nineties, he moved back to Wilmington and the film business in Wilmington, North Carolina was going full steam. Um, mm -hmm. so he kept telling me, you need to move here. Um, this is a great place to be doing what you do. So I moved to Wilmington and, uh, a week later got a job in Orlando, Florida nice. on a six month <laughs> TV show. <laughs> So I very quickly then moved to Orlando and spent the summer in Orlando working on a TV show. <laughs> what show was Went that? To, uh, it was a, a one season show called Fortune Hunter. Okay. That was, uh, let's see, that was probably 1994, 93, maybe. Um, and it, it was kind of like a James Bond action adventure TV show. Um, and did the summer on that. I worked, I was working as a grip um, and decided that I didn't really like doing grip work that much. And so I, uh, I gravitated after that more towards doing electrical and uh, moved back up to Wilmington, worked on a lot of projects in Wilmington, North Carolina up until um, 2015 when um, the film incentive was allowed to expire in North Carolina and the film industry there downsized quite a bit, quite drastically. Uh, so I made the move to Atlanta and I've been working steadily in Atlanta up until this whole coronavirus shut down. Um, since that point, you know, it's, it's funny cause I, I, you know, throughout the years you, you hear that the film incentive in all these different States, you know, when they increase, decrease, it makes a, it makes a very large ripple effect. I mean, you, you elected to go from North Carolina to Georgia because of that. Um, 
why why Atlanta at that time? Was it just because the film incentives in Atlanta kind of brought you there, or? Uh, well, I didn't just blindly make the decision to move to Atlanta. I I knew a lot of people in the industry gotcha. that I'd worked with over many many years, uh, and a lot of them had relocated to the Atlanta area. So I already had contacts. Um, this business is a lot about, I'm sure you guys know, um, networking, keeping in touch with friends. What are you working yeah. on? Where are you right now? Um, so I had a pretty good idea that I had some, if, if I made the move to Atlanta, I would have job prospects down here and that didn't disappoint. And, uh, it's, that's been a good move. Yeah. Nice. So, so let's, let's dive into some of your jobs and, and what it all entails. Um, one of them being mile 22, you were the rigging gaffer on that. Uh, can you, can you just, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot to unpack with, with that movie, uh, being a, being a, a very high octane action film. Um, what all were you responsible for? And, and can you give us some real life examples of, you know, what, what you did? Sure. Absolutely. Um, the rigging gaffer's job, um, initially during prep, you go on tech scouts. So you're out on location with uh, the head of departments from most of the departments. So, uh, you know, you have the director, the AD staff, um, director of photography, the key grip, the gaffer, the key rigging grip, rigging gaffer. Um, and you go into the different locations. The AD will tell you what you're going to do in that location. Um, director tells you what he wants to see. And then you kind of break down into small groups. And that's when the director of photography and the gaffer and the key grip and rigging key and rigging gaffer will all start talking and come up with a plan for that location. So if you need lifts to get lights through third story windows. You make note of that. If you want to change out all the fluorescent tubes to be able to control the lighting in a big office building, you take care of getting account of all the thousands of fluorescent tubes you might need or, um, and you do that for every location. Then you go back and you, uh, have to start putting to, together equipment lists. Um, most of the time you'll have an equipment list that will be something that you'll carry for a lot of locations. So you have kind of a standard truck package that will give you your cable and your power distribution. Um, and then you might have specific equipment that you order for certain locations. You might need certain lights to rig in lifts for a certain location. So you order those as drop packages for those locations. Then you have to work all the scheduling out, getting the stuff installed before the shooting crew, being there to help the shooting crew if they need assistance getting started, and then coming back and wrapping it. So you're, you're kind of leapfrogging ahead of the shooting crew to get it ready. And then you come in after the shooting crew has filmed the scenes and take it all down and return the equipment to the rental house. So there's logistics there that it's scheduling, um, staying on budget, getting stuff returned. So you are only paying a one week rental on something because some of the specialty lights can be quite expensive on a weekly rental basis. So right. there's a lot of juggling that goes into it and scheduling and stuff like that. 
um, with mile 22, we had a lot of location work. Um, the opening sequence of that movie is, is a big, um, you see some operatives coming in and working their way through a Russian safe house. And there's a big gun battle. And then one of the, they get outside the house and the scene ends outside the house. That was actually two separate locations. There was a, uh, an exterior house location in a neighborhood that we had to get ready to shoot the exterior work on. And then all of the interior where all the gunfight took place was all uh, on a soundstage. Mm. So one thing that we had to do was recreate the lighting that was happening out on location so that when you were inside the house, looking at the windows and the front porch and from the inside, it appeared that you were still in that house that was out sitting in the middle of a neighborhood, not inside of a dark box on the stage. <laughs> right. When you're scout, when you're scouting a location, you know, for the first time you touched on a couple points already, but when you are scouting, you know, maybe, uh, compare you know just kind of comparing that to the to indie film world or someone that's just getting started what are you looking for from like a lighting standpoint when you're scouting a location i know you'd mentioned uh, you know how many uh, units might be in the roof in case you want to replace them but is it is there anything else in relation to power or you know layout how where gear is going to go what all the kind of the factors that you're really taking to account when you scout um well the first thing you need to know when you're out on that tech scout, um, when the director starts talking about what he's envisioning, because you're really, you're part of the team that's helping the director bring the story to the screen. So you need to know what he's thinking, what he wants to see when he's at that location. And that tells you what's going to be safe for you. Um, so where can you hide generators? Where can you hide cable runs? Where can you bring power up to the house that won't be seen on camera? Um, to go back to the Mile 22 example, specifically that house, they drive up to the front of the house on the street and come up and knock on the front door. And then they exit the scene through the backyard. And it's a pretty wooded, natural looking backyard. So by talking with the director when we were out on that location, you, you find out, okay, we're going we're gonna to start in front of the house. We're going to look at the front of the house as the car pulls up. We're not going to wind up looking up the street to the right. So I can hide a generator maybe in the driveway two houses up mm. and bring power down through behind the houses and come up. So you start to figure out where you can stage gear, where you can, what you can do. Um, at that location, you always want to be respectful of any location, like on a location like that, where you're mainly there because of the exteriors of the house, you know, that you can't be running gators around in the backyard. And that, that right. particular house that we used had very soft soil. So any machinery that was run around back there would have left tracks and run mm -hmm. over the grass. So we had to carry everything into that backyard by hand, piece by piece. Wow. So, so that one, it, 
That was kind of a brutal day. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's actually what I was about yeah, to ask. Um, especially it, depending on what it is that you're hand carrying, for sure. Yeah. So knowing and, knowing that you guys had to, um, you know, it goes back to scheduling. You had to plan for a longer day, I would imagine. I mean, if plan for a longer day, and um, you want to add additional crew, and then of course you're going to get called into question because. Uh, uh, being a department head, you have to meet budgets, you have to meet schedules. And mm-hmm. when you want to add four more people onto your crew for a certain location, the unit production manager is going to want to know why. And you have to be able to go in and say, well, because of the sensitive nature of the location in the backyard, and we're filming in the backyard to get all of the power and distribution into the backyard, we have to carry it all in by hand. We can't even roll cable carts because the ground's too soft and it'll make tracks in the backyard. And they're like, oh my. And you're talking about cable that weighs 100 pounds a piece. Right. You know, so it's, and most of the time you can explain stuff and people get it, you know? Right. And so are you working in a case of like having to put the generator down the street and then weaving the cable through a couple houses, are you having to work very closely with locations and and other departments like that to kind of get across to them what your needs are or where certain things have to go? Yes, um, you do. uh, Usually the way that I do that is I will go on to like Google Maps and I will get an overhead Mm -hmm. of a location and I'll nice. give it to the locations department in, in the form of a request. I would like to put a generator here. I'd like to put a generator here and bring the cable this way. You know, and I'll, I'll mark out generators. And if they're going to be lifts like condors with lights, we need it here and here. And they'll get back to you and say, well, this person, they're not really being very friendly to us. They don't want us to go through their backyard. Do you have another option? And you just, you have a plan A, a plan B, a plan C, because that's, that's a big part of this is just solving the logistical problems that you run into when you go out. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not as simple as, you know, especially for someone that maybe doesn't know a, a lot about the industry. It's not as simple as showing up with your gear, lighting it, And, you know, I can say from like having been on a bunch of smaller projects, which I'm sure both of you guys feel the same, you know, have the same experiences is that you, you, a lot of times those small projects, they get to the location and all they have ever thought about is that one location, you know, none of the area around it, none of the neighboring houses or woods or streets or anything, or even the guidelines, you know, for example, we run a, a film and we were filming on a golf course at night. And I brought up the idea, like we got the spring and we're all out on this golf course, carts and carts and carts. And I'm like, we got these sprinklers turned off. Right. And the production coordinator <laughs> kind of looked at me, um, and was like sprinklers. And I was like, yeah, they water the grass, you know, like has everyone got the sprinklers turned off. And, uh, sure enough, 15 minutes later, the sprinklers turned on and there's a generator. <laughs> there's, all, <laughs> there's all kinds of stuff. And it's just situations like that inevitably happen when you're not thinking about that large picture, you know, that you're having to, that you're describing. Absolutely. You get into a lot of buildings sometimes that 
probably have fire suppression, smoke detection. Mm. Is the special effects department going to come in and create smoke? So we need to have somebody from the building that can shut that system off, which means you have to have a fire marshal to do a fire watch. Mm. And it's, it's things that you learn as you go along that it's like, okay, well, we definitely have to think about that now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You you were telling us earlier too, that, um, on mile 22, there's, you had the added element on on top of the other five elements that you've already talked about, but you had the added element of having to pay attention to stunts, which happen very regularly on this movie. So so talk through when you're doing the location scout, we, we've kind of dived into the location scout, running cable, uh, being problem solvers. But then on top of that, the director says, oh, by the way, there's going to be stunts all the time. So what, what does that cause? What does that cause you to do in your department? Uh, for example, there, um, going back again to mile 22, there's uh, a big fight scene that happens in the embassy medical area. Um, where one of the main characters um, is attacked by two people posing as medical technicians. And it's a big stunt scene. They're getting thrown through windows. He's handcuffed to a hospital bed. And as they're talking about this, you can see that they're going to be filming this probably with one camera, maybe two, but they're going to be dancing all around and seeing 360 degrees inside the room. So you have to figure out a way to bring power in, hide power. Do you hide it in drop ceilings so that the set crew has access to stuff when they need it, but it's not right out there in the middle of the shot and they're having to spend time taking it out of the movie while they're in there trying to film stunt sequences, which always take a long time just because of the nature of doing stunts. You know, you rehearse it and rehearse it and rehearse it because once you start smashing glass and breaking stuff, it takes a long time to get the set put back together. So you want to get it rehearsed and choreographed. And there's a lot of that goes in. The stunt department will pre-visualize. They'll actually shoot rehearsals where they build rooms out of boxes and do the stuff they're going to do. And they'll show it to everybody so that everybody's on the same page once they get there on the day. Um, But in that whole embassy area, the director of photography decided to um, use mainly uh, the fluorescent lighting that existed and then augment that with smaller heads that they could move around very easily on the ground that didn't draw a whole lot of power. And then in a couple of the offices that had exterior windows, we had lifts with HMI lighting pushing through the windows um, to act like sunlight. Nice. The, as far as how are are you involved in any when there's car chases or anything like that are you involved with any of the rigging or planning for car chases are you guys like going out and maybe a day ahead of you know getting lighting done for the streets that they're going to go down and stuff like that yeah it it um 
it all depends on what the car chase is going to be. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you've got stunt work at night, you have to sometimes light um, a couple of miles worth of street. Uh, I, I did some second unit work on a movie called Due Date um, that some of the stuff we were shooting, they steal a car or steal a truck that has a, a, like a mobile trailer behind it. That's a police trailer. And then this big chase ensues. And we had two miles of interstate lit up so that they could do all the stunt work on that. And it took us about a week working at night to film that, but you want to be able to control all of the street lights. If you need to turn them off on one side of the road, um, and we had several condors and musco lights, which are big um, lights that come in on trucks that have multiple heads that you can focus remotely um, along that entire stretch of interstate. Wow. So every, every night we'd come in at about five o'clock in the afternoon and get everything up in the air. So once it got dark, we could start rehearsing and filming and it wound up being a couple of minutes long in the final movie, but it was, it was a good probably three to four weeks worth of work to get it ready to film it and take it all down. Holy, that's all right. Um, when, how many, I mean, you say a couple, how, how many feet of cable would you guesstimate you guys had thrown out for something like that? Well, in a situation like that, um, we had certain areas where we had cable for the camera cars, but the Musco lights have their own generators built into them. So you basically, you drive that into place and then it's like a crane. So it has levelers that go out and then it goes up in the air and it's all self-contained. When you have a Condor, you, um, or the man lifts that we put lights on, you have to, put the lights on it and power that. So we just had individual generators at each lift. So it wasn't miles and miles of cable that we had to put out for that specific one. But you do get into situations where you can, um, Godzilla King of the Monsters, we filmed in an old railroad tunnel and the closest that we could get the generator was about 800 feet from the mouth of the tunnel. And then the set was another 500 feet inside the tunnel. Mm. So we wound up having to run 480 power to a transformer at the mouth of the tunnel and then stepping it down from 480 to 120 to go into the tunnel just so we wouldn't have voltage drop over a 1500 foot long run of cable. Right. So that's another thing that you have to take into consideration in when you're figuring stuff out, how close can you get the generators? You want to get them far enough away from set that they're not bothering the sound department. Um, but close enough that you're not having voltage issues because some lights are very sensitive to low voltage and they won't work properly. So, in that situation, that, what did you, what, was that the closest that you felt comfortable getting everything or 
like you, I know you said that it was because of um, you know you were the, the closest you can get the generators, but was when you did the I, I guess what my my what my actual question is what did you have to account for with the voltage drop uh, for someone who doesn't understand that that is actually a thing when it comes to electricity? Um, how did you come to that de- determining factor of this is the distance that I need to be? Well, in that, for uh, the Godzilla thing that we shot in the railroad tunnel, that was really determined by the location. Um, it was a Civil War era railroad tunnel that was closed and had a a basically golf cart width footpath that came up to the tunnel. Um, And it was something that you could go and tour. So Mm -hmm. it had kind of been turned into a, not a national park, but you know, it was like a come see the civil war era tunnel. You could go and walk through it and it, it was a cool old tunnel. But the parking area was about 800 feet from the mouth of the tunnel. So the closest physically that we could put the generator was 800 feet from the mouth of the tunnel. Because we couldn't take it down the path because it would block the crew getting in and out with any other equipment. So we had to get a small transformer that we could kind of set off to the side. And we actually had to dig out a little small flat spot to put the transformer in and then we parked the generator in the first parking space in the parking lot area as close as we could get it but that was still 800 feet from the mouth of the tunnel and then the little archway that they wanted to film that was supposed to be a doorway into like an underground bunker um, was about 500 feet inside the tunnel so to actually film just the few shots that they needed of her going into that doorway was a pretty good length from the closest you could get the generator. So you asked about voltage drop as electricity runs through cable on paper, you'll drop about six volts for every hundred feet. So if you start off say with 124 volts, theoretically, and this is, there are a lot of factors that come into this that I won't go into because they're real technical, but um, the more you, the more amperage that you're pulling through cable, the more resistance that you get, which causes voltage drop. So if you're pulling a pretty good heavy load, 1500 feet down a run of cable, 120 volts coming out of the generator is going to be 90 volts at the end of that cable run. So by going 480 on the generator to a transformer and then stepping it down to go into the tunnel, you kind of eliminate the voltage drop issue going from the generator to the transformer. You still have to take into account you've got a 500 foot run from the transformer to the set, but that's an acceptable length of cable. Wow. Gotcha. Did that answer? Yeah, no, yeah. It, it definitely no, did. Definitely. And it just shows that there's more to what you do than just laying cable and rigging. I mean, there's, you, you very literally have to manage the electricity that 
those lights use. And that's kind of what I was wanting you to get to. And you definitely did. H- how is that different from being on a set, um, a soundstage, sorry. Um, you know, you've done several projects that, um, are not only on location, such as the Godzilla example you just gave us, but you know, you've done some very sizable, um, some very sizable soundstage work. What's the different, what's the differences in electricity on a soundstage? Well, um, to start off with most of the sound stages that you come across, if they are actual purpose built stages that are built to be a sound stage, they'll generally have pretty ample power um, spread around inside the building. If they have a catwalk area, they'll have some services in that catwalk area. And that makes it pretty easy to get the power that you need because you'll have maybe six 400 amp three phase services on the ground around the perimeter of the stage. So you figure up your load and that's another part of the rigging gaffer job is even when you're in a stage, um, you have to figure out, if, if we have a whole bunch of 20,000 watt lights down one side of a big ballroom set, what's the power draw on that? What's my overall amperage load? And how do I need to split that up between the services that are available on that stage so that I still have power for the set guys to put their lights in when they get in there? You know, you're kind of lighting the environment, but they're still going to need to get in there and light the talent and the scene. So you have to, you can't put, you can't max out the power that's available on the stage with the rig that you put in. You have to leave ample power for them to have on set as well. So there is, there is a decent amount of math that goes into figuring it out. And it's, it's not super complicated. You just have to sit down with the DP and the gaffer and they tell you what they want, what they want to use. You figure up that load and then you figure up what they need for available set power. You also need to talk to other departments like special effects. Are they going to be using electric Ritter fans, which can cause problems with some type of ballasted lights like HMIs. Um, They can cause those to flicker. So you want to put them on a different service. Uh, Sometimes stunts might need 480 volt service if they're going to be using winches to fly people like wire work. So you have to communicate with all the departments and find out what all their needs are so that, you can figure out, okay, we've got this box and there's this much power in this box. Do I have enough in here or do I need to bring in more power from outside with a generator sitting outside for stunts for 480 volts for stunts or, and they generally want their own service so that there's nothing else. If they've got a stunt performer hanging on a wire, they don't want, the possibility of somebody turning on a light and it blowing a breaker and their stunt person being stuck in midair. 
So they, they always want their own thing. Even if they're drawing a very minuscule amount of power, they want their own service. And that's completely reasonable. And it's just something that you have to figure into the whole equation. Yeah. I mean, that's actually a, um, so, I mean, once again, something that you just wouldn't think of until you have several years in the industry, but having, having, um, someone on set or having stunts on set saying we want our own dedicated power, it's also kind of trickles down to safety because whoever's handle, whoever's in the, whoever's handling the stunt at that moment could cause a problem if, uh, if they're just kind of hanging out. Nope. I mean, a little bit of a pun intended there. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I I was about to, I was about to say no pun intended, but no, there was definitely, definitely playing a pun there. Um, can, can we dive into the the soundstage rigging a little bit more? Um, it's kind of something that interests me because I, I have had very little soundstage um, experience. A lot of the jobs that I've worked on have been on location. Um, you know, you you have you have a very long long list of uh, credentials. Uh, can you can you give us an example of one of the movies that you've been on that um, required some extra rigging and just just dive into an example that is um, uh, that that you feel comfortable talking about. You know, we we talked about Zombieland, Mile Twenty Two. You've done some Marvel movies. Um, you know, what what can you give us a real life rigging example that was kind of fun for you? Uh, well, I love doing this, so it's it's always all fun, um, and that's one thing I love about this business is that you you might be working with the same lights on 10 movies in a row, but you're using them differently every time you do it. Um, specifically to answer your question, let's, let's go back to the, the opening scene of mile 22 and the big stunt, um, the gun battle that takes place um, inside the house. The interior of that house was on a soundstage. Um, so we had to go in and we had to rig lights to be on all of the windows. So we wound up using um, 10K Fresnels that we hung on truss for all of the windows in that house. We used um, Space Lights, which is a 6,000 watt light um, that gives you a, like an ambient um daylight kind of feel like mm-hmm. a clear sunny day um how you just have ambient light that fills up the outside space you have to do that um and then you also have to if you have a backing um which we did for that set um you have to light use the space lights to light any trees and bushes and stuff they put outside of windows. And then depending on what kind of backing is being used, you either have to put light from the front side of it and light it from the front. Or sometimes if you have a nighttime backing, they have backings that you can light from the back um, that will like windows will glow. So it looks like the street across the house across the street has their living room light on. Um, and you'll light that from the backside. Um, so you have to work with the rigging grip department. You tell them you need to hang all of these lights and 
we'll go through and mark out on the floor, work with the dimmer board operator and get a lighting plot for the inside of the stage. And then um, the rigging grip department will work off of that plot and they'll put up truss a lot of times on motors or sometimes they'll hang pipe that you can hang lights on. And then you go back in and the electric rigging crew will hang the lights. Um, if you have to put them all on dimmer boards, you, you run the control cable and the power cable to power the light and then allow the dimmer board operator to control the light. Um, can I pause you real quick? Can you tell us what a plot is? So, um, a plot basically is a map of the inside of the stage and it shows where each individual light is. So say you had a, a house that had a door and four windows, you might have, so you would draw the set and you would have all of the windows and all of the doors in that set represented on the drawing. And it, it kind of looks like an overhead architectural of the set. And then the dimmer board operator will go in and he'll say, okay, we, we want a 10 K on truss here for this window, here for this window, here for the front door, here for this window and here for this window. And that tells us that along this line, all of these lights need to be able to go through the windows. And then you have a conversation with the DP and the gaffer. Do you want them all to be the same height or do you want them to be individually adjustable so that you can take each one of them up and down? Can we, can we use them on stands on the floor or do you need to hang them because of what you're going to see out the windows? So you just, you figure out, what you're going to do, but that lighting plot basically shows you, it goes through and shows you where all of the lights need to go for all of the windows and doors and exterior illumination. It'll show you where the backdrop's going to be. It'll show you the fire lane. So, okay, you, you can't ever put anything in the fire lane when you're on a stage. You have to keep a, a four foot, minimum clear all the way around the perimeter of the, of the room. So it just, it kind of is an overhead map of everything that's going to go into that soundstage box. I'd imagine that plot is um, essentially a, a, the golden ticket for, for you and the DP and, and uh, the various departments. Yes. Yeah, it um, it starts in the conception uh, when you go out and scout, and then you'll sit down, and usually the dimmer board operator is not out on the scout, but you'll come back and sit down with the board operator, and okay, this is the stage, and this is what we talked about doing, and they'll come up with a plot, and then you look at that with the gaffer and the DP, and they'll make changes to it. It also comes into play, you know, you, you get quotes and the unit production manager says, there's no way we can afford all this trust. <laughs> and so you go, okay, so trust and motors are out. So we'll dead hang pipe. And which means that instead of it being on trust and motors, more like a rock and roll setup where you can run it up and down. 
um, and change the height of that piece of truss. It's just hanging basically on a cable or a chain at a, at a set height. So this is the angle that we want the light coming in the window. So we need it 10 feet off of the set wall and 15 feet in the air. So let's hang a pipe right there. And that, that, so you do that dance and that's, that's another part of the rigging gaffer position is the DP generally dreams pretty large and asks for what in his mind is the perfect world scenario. And sometimes you're able to do that. Sometimes you're not. And you have to figure out how to achieve the look that he is trying to give the director while still meeting the budget of the production. So, yeah, the, we've had a few DPs on in past episodes, and they they've all kind of said the same thing. So it, it definitely appears to be a consensus item that they know that they are pushing the crew, but they know that there's limitations. And as the um, rigging gaffer, I would imagine you kind of see a lot of those limitations earlier because you're, you know, theoretically you're rigging those scenes before first unit even gets on set are there are there moments that you already you know the the trust example you you can already see the upm saying that's not going to happen we need to have fixed um pipe are you sometimes already preemptively doing that or are you always making sure that you're you're trying your best to make the gaff the the dp's reality come to life or there's a moment or two that you know no i i know i need to do this preemptively because I know I'm, it's going to be nixed, for example. Um, you always, I, I always approach a job. Um, I, I try to give the DP and the gaffer as much adjustability as humanly possible. So, because you never know what's going to wind up happening on set. You know, they, they'll come in and they may have talked about filming a scene a certain way the entire time that you've been in prep for this. And then they come in and they start rehearsing it and it's just not working the way that they thought it was going to, and they need to change. And if you're locked into something, it's a big deal to change it at that point. So if they can easily move the lights, if, if you can put the light on a piece of truss on a trolley so you can move it left and right and up and down, then it's very simple to move all the lights from coming in the left side of the window to coming in the right side of the window. You know, so you try to give as much adjustability as possible. And if you start having to make cuts. That only complicates things, doesn't it? Well, it, you're always going to have to meet budgets. So that that's just, that's a, part of the job that you you figure out okay well we can give this up and that doesn't really hurt the overall look that we're trying to achieve but we absolutely have to have this gotcha you know it it, it, it would be like um in the camera department if you needed to do a crane move and 
you had to give up something else to be able to afford that crane. But the only way that you could get the shot that you wanted, that the director's visualizing was to be on a camera crane. You got to have that camera crane. There's no other way to get it. Gotcha. You know, so you give up something else to get this because we really need that. And it's, it's always a dance and, you know, you, you try to give them as much as you can while trying to stay in the budget of the production because everything it's, it's a business, you know, you're, you're making a product. It's a one-off product, but you can't just run wild and do everything that you ever wanted to do. Cause you think it's really, really cool. No, we've, we've definitely right. dived into the, the business side of the industry. And that's something that a lot of people don't realize is that, you know, this is the entertainment industry. It is a business at the end of the day. Yes. What I mean, on that note, well, maybe not on that note, but just a shifting direction a little bit. I mean, and, and taking from your experience of how you came into the business uh, inside of the G&E department, what would you say, you know, nowadays is probably the most important trait for someone to have that wants to get into the G&E department? Wow. <laughs> um. most important trait or maybe 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 if it's not the most important just what in your mind are maybe a couple points that you know if someone wants to come to you and say hey you know i want to get into the business what 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 some advice would you give me you know what what does someone need to be thinking about as they you know as they want to go down this journey and get into the, get into g and e um well, I, I would say it's it's important to always want to learn new things. Um, I've I've been doing it for a while, and I still learn new technologies. Hmm. Lights, especially now, are changing so quickly. So you've got to be able you got to keep up, and you got to read the new stuff and and learn what is what your capabilities are, um, and there's so many new tools being offered into our toolbox to work with that allow so much flexibility, um, that, that willingness to, to learn and to ask questions and put it to work. You know, GNE always is a very, you guys know, it's, it's a very physical side of the business. You know, there's, there's not a lot of sitting around with a clipboard and thinking about it. You're picking up cable, you're picking up lights, you're running it around in the rain and yep. the mud. And oh yeah, you're working. It's, um, you, you have to be willing to do the physical side of the, of the work, but also you can always learn a new way, a different way to do something. Um, that's one thing that, the more people that you get to work with, um, gaffers will have certain ways that they like to do things and they're not right. They're not wrong a hundred percent of the time. And it's more things that you can add to your repertoire and you might have five ways to do something and they'll all get the job done equally as well in one situation. But one of those five ways is going to be the only way to solve the problem the next time around. Mm -hmm. So the more, the more things you can learn and retain and 
be able to put into use, the better off you're going to be the farther you come, the farther you work yourself into the business. You know, there was something that you said there, it, it shifts gears a little bit, but you mentioned um, lights. How has the shift in into LED helped set life recently? I mean, there's been a, there's been a monstrous shift to LED over the last, what, five, six, seven years. Um, how has that helped your job in, in, um, in rigging? In, in some ways it's helped a lot because of the lower power that most of the LED fixtures use compared to the older lighting fixtures. Um, they make an LED equivalent to a space light. Um, the old space lights are six 1000 watt light bulbs. So that it's a 6,000 or a 6K light. They make an LED version of that. Mole Richardson has one that basically has the same light output. You can control the color temperature on the light so you don't have to put gel on it. And it uses a 20-amp circuit, one 20-amp circuit instead of basically 100 amps going to an individual light. So you have a lot less power that you have to put in the air but you have to be able to control that. So it has increased the data side of it, but it, it allows the director of photography and the gaffer a lot more flexibility on set. So if they want to change the color of the light, that used to be something that you would have to do with gel. So you'd have to, if you had 10 lights and you wanted to warm them up a little bit, you'd have to go and you, the grip department, if they were putting it on a frame or you'd have to go and put it on the barn doors of each light individually. Now, if you've got a bunch of sky panels, you just say, ah, let's warm it up about 500 degrees Kelvin. And you just make the change in the dimmer board and all the lights change color. Boop, done. It's a couple of clicks of the button with a good dimmer board operator. And that problem is solved. <laughs> You're not spending tons of money on gel. The lights themselves are more expensive, but you're saving money and time, which when you have the shooting crew there, if you can save five minutes on set with all the people that are on set on those on larger movies, that's literally thousands of dollars that you're saving right there. Yeah, it makes a difference in the long run. Absolutely. Um, so... One last question from me. Um, we pre we previously talked about um, how you know you were on well offline. We talked about how you worked on Zombieland Double Tap. Uh, yes. Can can you give me your your favorite scene from that movie? Uh, just it it was a great movie, and I I feel like it would probably it would behoove me. I, I would regret later not asking you what your favorite scene from that movie was. Oh man. Um, gosh, I, th I think the, the whole rooftop with the, the Buffalo jump where, 
Woody Harrelson leads all the zombies off the edge of the skyscraper. Um, no, it's a good one. And now what did you, what did your department do for that, for that scene? Well, that actually, that whole thing was, there was a location that was an old round hotel that's here in Atlanta that, um, was the parking lot and the lead up to the skyscraper, but the rooftop was actually a set that was built on the back lot at uh, Pinewood Studios in Fayetteville. So that actually was a ground level set. It was not 20 feet in the air or 200 feet in the air, like it was supposed to be in the movie. Um, but we had lifts around that. Um, and there were that, that particular set was lit with a lot of practical lighting. There was so much stuff that was dressed in. Um, we had a fixtures department on that, which that's kind of a specialized part of rigging that, um, they went in and they, they worked with the set deck department and got all those string lights and all the, all the little stuff that you see on camera that was all controlled by the dimmer board. So there was a lot of work that went into that set to make it look like a bunch of hippies living on this rooftop commune, just kind of hung a bunch of string lights around. Right. Um, and the majority of that was lit with stuff that you saw on camera. You know, they, they did bring in fixtures for individual shots to light the talent, but a lot of that base light was lit by the, the practical lighting. But then there was the stunt component where they ran off and they had to run off into a blue screen because they're supposed to be on top of a skyscraper. And if you looked off of the ramp on the rooftop set, you were looking into the woods behind Pinewood. <laughs> so we had to put blue screens out there and light those blue screens at night so that you could put the skyline in as they ran off of the lip of the building and all the zombies fell to their death and Woody grabbed onto that crane ball. Now, you guys, make, great, now you guys make me want to see that scene because I still haven't seen Double Tap yet. Oh, uh, wow. Well, <laughs> it's it, a lot of fun. It's Yeah, it, it, by no means does that, by hearing that, does that ruin the movie. Um, but, you know, that, it's, a, it's a very, very humorous scene. And just knowing that, you know, just, you know, to kind of recap, I mean, rigging crew has their hands in essentially every every scene in some way, shape, or form, some more than others. I mean, you talked about a, a car scene earlier that took you almost, what, three weeks between setup, shooting, and dismantling just for a, what, five-minute scene in a movie, four-minute scene? So, yeah. um, you know, what, what you guys do is it, it's not um, – it's not always seen, but it it's very literally seen on on set. And that's that's a that's the main thing with the rigging rigging grip. It's it's an off production extension of the director of photography and the gaffer and the key grip. You're trying to get everything ready for them so that they can come in with the talent and quickly and fairly seamlessly film what they need to do. You know, you're, you're getting, you're getting the whole environment ready so that they can walk in, uh, 
with still a lot of effort on their part, but walk in and, and film stuff in a couple of nights that you've been getting ready sometimes for a month. Right. Cause if, if you weren't doing that, then otherwise, you know, schedule wise with talent and everyone, they're there for double, triple the amount of time. Right. So awesome. Well, that was Thomas. That was an awesome episode. I really appreciate you coming on and talking with us today and giving us all your insight into the, the rigging is being a rigging gaffer and into the rigging department. Um, your resume is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> in a very, in a very good way. Yeah. We could be talking um, for two more hours on, on all <laughs> the different projects. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm don't, don't, don't play this wrong. I'm literally having to give myself a hard cap on this because I, I would just spend the rest of my night talking with you about all these movies. And then I would make the, the, the wife and the, the, the kid go, would go missing, um, from, from my night. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I greatly appreciate your time and, you know, there, I feel like in just the amount of time and what we've talked about now, there's still so much more that we could unpack and uh, talk about. So if you're game, I would love to have you back on another day and maybe just go over some more of the projects and talk a little bit more. Yeah. Cause we, yeah. we didn't even talk about black Panther, Dr. Sleep. Uh, I mean, we talked about the tiny one, you know, very small scene on Godzilla. There's, there's more to, more to talk about and Homeland, um, you know, a whole, whole TV series. I, I'm kind of would love oh, to talk about how, um, a TV series is different than a movie, um, with, when it comes to rigging. So, um, thank Absolutely. you. Thank you for your time. We, I, I wholeheartedly uh, agree with Josh and would love to have you on, um, again. I would love that too. Awesome. Well, thanks brother for your time and, uh, you have a good one. Take it easy. You guys too. Thanks. It's been been fun. Kevin. Josh. It's the end of the podcast. So what does that mean? It means that if you're listening, we want a follow and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. Check us out at FGIPodcast.com as well. Yeah. And follow us on the social medias at FGI Podcast. Hopefully you've gotten something out of the episode. So we really appreciate the support by leaving your likes and reviews.